0: I am a person who generally likes questions. I generally like especially a good question. But there is one type of question. I always struggle with. Describe yourself. Tell me about yourself in 30 words or less. The Richardsons, you might remember them when they came to visit us uh, and and offer some extra care a couple years ago. Was that long. A year ago, I don't know. They introduced themselves to our staff and Vestry and asked every person to, a- to answer this question. What are three words your friends would use to describe you? It's a really good question and I could not answer it. <laughs> I needed at least a week to think about it and I didn't. How do you learn to describe yourself and understand who you are? Maybe you found a tool helpful like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or spiritual gifts or any of those, you know, assessments you can take online. Maybe you describe yourself through your activities or your abilities. Well, I'm an athlete. I'm a singer. I'm a high school student. Maybe you describe yourself through your relationships. Well, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a kid, I'm an aunt, I'm a friend, I'm married, I'm single. In our culture in general, there are ever more complicated categories of identity race and ethnicity, politics, religion, sexual orientation, gender, even where we shop. Well, it seems we have more options than ever for how we answer that question, who are you? And with so much up for grabs, more anxiety over identity than ever. Well, in this messy moment in our culture, Christians have a unique answer to this question of identity. And that answer is made manifest, made visible here in the embodied act of baptism. Last week, we entered the season of Epiphany, which is when we see Jesus's identity and glory gradually revealed, made manifest, made clear to those who respond to him. And today, we look at the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism declares and anchors his identity. And as we'll see, so does ours. Three observations this morning. First, in his baptism, Jesus' identity is declared and anchored through a true word from the Father that is for Jesus alone. A lot in that. unpack it. The first we've heard of Jesus since he was 12 years old is when he shows up in the crowd to be baptized by John. We don't know what happened in between there. John the Baptist has been preaching this, this repent, repent. He's been waiting for this moment and the world has been waiting. This could be Jesus's big reveal. And yet we know from the other gospels that the only person who recognizes Jesus in the crowd is John. John is the only one of the bystanders who seems to see the dove as well. And John doesn't seem to hear the voice. The voice isn't for John and it's not for the crowd. As far as we can tell, the voice is heard only by Jesus. The words are for him and him alone. Now, there's evidence that Jesus had a sense of divine identity before this. Remember, at 12 years old, he calls the temple his father's house. There's something going on that he's working through. I'm sure Mary told him what the angel said to her. I'm sure he studied scripture with an eye towards what scripture revealed about himself as the Messiah. But it's no accident that as Jesus rises from the waters of baptism, before he enters the wilderness to be tested, before he goes out teaching and healing and casting out demons, before he takes the road to the cross, before all of that, Jesus hears the voice of the Father telling him who he is. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These words anchor Jesus's sense of identity from them on, then on. I think about all the different ways people use words toward Jesus in the Gospels. The Pharisees try to trick him, right? They ask trick questions. In the wilderness, the adversary tries to manipulate him with words. The crowds reject him with words. But Jesus, before all of that, hears a true word from the Father, and it must have stuck, because if he's the only one that heard the voice, he had to have told the disciples about it. And it's in all four Gospels. This is a big deal for Jesus. The words spoken over us matter, particularly words that speak to who we are. Words shape our sense of who we are, for good or for bad. I imagine all of us have stories of times that people have used words that struck at the heart of who we are, for good or for bad. Words build up or destroy. In Jesus's baptism and in our baptisms, the Father speaks a true word, one that can anchor us in who we are when we need it most, and which the words of others can never take from us or render null and void. In baptism, Jesus's identity is declared to him in a way that anchors him for the rest of his life and ministry, and our baptism anchors us too. Second, Jesus's baptism declares and anchors his identity in the great story. So we talked about identity in word. Now this is identity in story or narrative. The story we tell about ourselves in the world is really fundamental to our sense of identity because we all enter the world not at the very beginning of a story. My story did not begin when I was born. I entered in the middle. Something was happening in your parents' lives when you were born. Something was happening in the world. Where you were born shapes your story. So does your skin color and your gender and how you express it and how much money your family had and whether you were healthy in body and mind and whether your caregivers were. All of these things shape our story. None of these things we have control over as we walk through the world. We all live in a story only partially of our own making. Well, Jesus too was born into the middle of a story, the great story, the one that scripture tells. The first part of the story, Old Testament, was a cliffhanger, clearly anticipating a sequel. (laughs) Anybody know the name Patrick Rothmas? He's a, a fiction writer who's written two excellent books, and there's a third that he might write someday, We're just hanging on for dear life. Come on, Patrick, you can finish it. Well, that's kind of like what it's like when Jesus is born. I'm not sure anyone has ever compared Jesus to Patrick Rothmas before. John the Baptist shows up and says, the sequel is coming and here he is. I think I I am uh, not good at catching things in movies that I'm supposed to catch. I know there's someone sitting in the back who's really good at that. Well, you know, if you read some of the the reviews of movies, critics catch things that I would never even think of. You know, this color refers back to this moment when this thing happened, ah, it goes over my head. For a movie critic, sometimes it's helpful to pause the screen to take a closer look, just to catch all the things that are happening, to slow down, cross-reference, Pause the screen. Well, that's what we're gonna do for a second in this moment of baptism. Imagine this in your head. If you can see pictures, you know, I can't. Uh, Imagine this. We're gonna imagine this as a screen with little like arrows and captions pointing to what's going on. That's what we're gonna do for a second here. We pause the screen. What are all the different things connected to the great story? Well, there's one little arrow in this freeze frame that points to the sky. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the very first thing that happens is that he sees the heavens torn open. Mark uh, uses a very particular word here. He had other words he could use, but he uses one that is the word we get schism from, something being torn apart. Well, there's a commentator from Singapore named Kim Huat Tan who points out that just through that one word, torn open, Mark, Evokes Isaiah 64:1. So this arrow has a caption that says Isaiah 64:1. Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. In this moment the heavens are rent, they're torn open. And the caption points out God has come down. In the person of Jesus. There's another arrow that points to the dove. Jesus sees the heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Again, caption, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Here, Yahweh is putting his spirit on the chosen one in whom he is well pleased. And the caption of the dove reminds us The Jewish people expected an outpouring of the Spirit in the day of the Lord, a moment of cleansing that would result in the renewal of all Israel. Here it is, right here. And the caption points out that we're kind of used to the Holy Spirit as a dove, but this was an unusual image. The dove is not really used to depict the Spirit in in the great story. It's usually associated with Israel. A picture, another arrow connecting the dove to the word son which is the name placed on Jesus by that voice from heaven. The arrows remind us that in the first part of the great story, Israel was called Yahweh's son. Now that title is placed on Jesus. There's a lot going on. Another arrow points to the water itself. And this caption borrows a quote from Fleming Rutledge's book on Epiphany. To be baptized by John is to submit to a personal, individual cleansing from sin. But who is able to take away the sin of the whole world? And this caption has a cross-reference to John's gospel. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It points out that Jesus is being baptized here not because he needed to repent of personal sins, but as an embodied way of entering into the great story in solidarity with sinners to live faithfully where Israel failed and thus to bless all nations through himself. He enters in for us. Then there's a really fun arrow that points under the water and it has a picture of a carving of Jesus's baptism from a church door in Cologne, which pictures Jesus stomping on a demon while he's being baptized. If anybody wants to draw me a picture of that, if you're bored during the sermon, please do. I would love to see it. Fleming Rutledge points out again, the early church saw the story of Jesus's baptism in these huge mythological terms as a descent into the realm of death and Satan. By his immersion, the waters are purified and the demons conquered. Jesus's baptism is a picture in advance of his death and resurrection and his victory over the powers of chaos and destruction. This is getting to be a very crowded screen, all in just a few images and words. Now Jesus knew what was being declared here through all these images and pictures, and he knew how it fit into the great story. There's one last caption that points forward in an arrow to the next parts of the story. Because next, right after this, the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, dot, 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 just like Israel came through the Red Sea in the Exodus, and then wanders in the desert 40 years. And then Jesus's first public words are from Isaiah 42. Again, this very passage, evoked in the baptism account. Jesus knows the great story. He knows how big it is. He knows the stakes and his baptism both declares it and anchors his place in it. When we are baptized and you'll hear this in our baptism uh, liturgy today, we too are baptized into this great story because that great story is now the story of Jesus. We are baptized into his story, into his death and resurrection. We die to sin. We rise to new life through the Holy Spirit given to us, just as the Holy Spirit descended on him. So the Holy Spirit fills us in our baptism. Rutledge reminds us that in baptism, we also share in Jesus's victory over the powers of darkness. The baptisms of believers should be victory celebrations. I love that. Thomas and Alexander this morning will be baptized into the great story. Your life is a story, do you know that? Yeah. And those who are bringing them, part of the commitment that you're making is teaching them what this great story is and how they have a unique way to live into it. You help them find their place in the story. Jesus' baptism declares and anchors his place in the great story, and so does ours third and last. Jesus' baptism declares and anchors his identity in his belovedness. We talked about how words shape our identity and how story shapes our identity. Well, so do relationships. In fact, one of the myths of identity in the modern world is this message that we're supposed to just kind of find our identity on our own. Like you could just go out in the wilderness and think a while and and light campfires and eventually you'll figure out exactly who you are, the end. Now, don't get me wrong, we need differentiation. We need to know where I end and you begin, but our identity is never formed apart from relationship. It's been fascinating to learn more about what neuroscience has learned, about how our brains do this. We have these things called mirror neurons, in our brain that are constantly giving us information, mirroring back what we're picking up from others, whether or not we're aware of it. Infants first learn about themselves, not through, who am I? Who am I? I know I'm hungry, but who am I? They learn it through what they see reflected in their caregivers' faces. When a child has caregivers who can't or don't accurately reflect back what their child is experiencing Or when a child has caregivers who reflect back contempt or disgust instead of love and care, that changes a child's brain. What did you see reflected back to you in your caregiver's eyes? What have you seen reflected back to you in the eyes of others as you've grown? What do you see reflected back to you as you look at yourself in the mirror? These things are powerful shapers of who we are. Well, Jesus, at this crucial entry into ministry, hears his Father's assurance that he is the beloved Son. Jesus doesn't have to worry or wonder about his security and his relationship, his attachment with the Father. He's secure in his belovedness because he's heard it declared over him and sealed in baptism. Jesus is able to do what he does in the world because his identity is anchored first and foremost in his status as beloved son of the Father. And that is the relationship with us that the Father also declares and anchors in our baptism. In baptism, we're adopted as beloved children of the Father. We never have to wonder what we will see reflected back to us in our heavenly Father's eyes. It is always beloved. This week, I sat with a man in my office who I've talked with here and there, someone from the community, someone who could be described uh, in the words of Howard Thurman as a man who lives his life with his back against the wall, someone with a hard life. He has experienced incarceration, addiction, poverty, violence, he had a a God-fearing mama. He's getting help, but it's really hard to find employment and housing when you've got a record. So he still struggles. He's spoken to me on more than one occasion of how much it hurts when someone shrinks back from him when they pass him in the street or on the train, because he's black. He's spoken to me of the rage he sometimes feels at how he's judged based on his appearance. But this time, he also spoke to me about what he was learning about his own belovedness, how he was aware and growing in his awareness that he's a child of God with worth that doesn't depend on how anyone else treats him, and how he was aware that everyone else he meets is also a person of worth, even the people who mistreat him. He spoke of how he was trying to learn how to deal with his rage, to pray for the Lord to punish others, but then leave it to God, which is exactly what the Psalms do, by the way. This was amazing theology from this gentleman at this time when my sermon was only half formed, let me tell you. This man's growing knowledge of his own belovedness is changing how he walks through the world, and it is powerful. Do you know your own belovedness? Do I? If you've been baptized, you are part of the household of God and declared free. You are God's beloved child. If you are not baptized, you too are beloved and God's love for you is so deep. He wants you to be part of his family, part of the great story that is such good news, freed from sin and evil and all of the things that keep human beings bound in despair. You are beloved. Do you know your own belovedness? If you take nothing else from this sermon today, don't you love it when preachers do this? Take this question. What would remind you of your own belovedness today? Jesus's baptism declares and anchors his identity in his belovedness, first and foremost to he, him himself, and it does for us too. I'm going to add a caption to our screen, and it's one just from me. I have no idea if this is a real thing or not. I haven't found it in a commentary. It's my imagination as someone who likes fantasy novels. There is one other place in scripture where a dove is featured. The story of Noah and the ark. You might remember the dove is the second bird that Noah sends out after it stopped raining, but the flood is just big. He sends it out, hoping to find land. And at first, the dove flies around and returns empty-beaked. The second time, the dove flies around and returns with an olive branch in its beak. And the third time, the dove doesn't return. And Noah realizes that the waters have receded and it's safe to come out. Well, in my imagination, that dove, looking for safety, And dry ground just flies and flies, flies through time, flies through space. And after a very long time of waiting, it returns to rest on Jesus, that safe place of solid ground. It is on him that we stand. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I offer these words. Amen.